Thanks for tuning in and watching this week's message. We don't want anybody to feel obligated to give just because they watch the message. But if you'd like to, we'd be most appreciative. We're a rather small group here in Colorado, but we seem to have a rather large online audience. And we'd love for you uh, to be a part of supporting it if, if you want to. You can do that by going to our website and pressing on the donate button. Thanks for watching. Good morning. I, um, as I was getting ready this morning, I, I wasn't sure if sh shorts were appropriate. I felt like I was supposed to wear long pants. And so I split the difference. I found these at the thrift store. I do need to say that my fashion decisions, my wife wants you to know, do not reflect on her. Okay, that I am an independent, and a free agent. Um, so you can draw whatever conclusions you want from that, but I thought I would just acknowledge that those are my choices. We're going we're gonna to do something just a tad different this morning, in that I'm going to ask you to, if you want, to take out your phone, if you have a phone, and <laughs> who doesn't, but you may have been trained not to bring it, and go ahead and you know, put it on silent and all that, but I'm going to put my phone number up here, and I want to try something today. That is, because, you know, I like, I, I kind of like conversation, and I like a little bit of interaction. And so, um, there are going to be some moments in our conversation today that if you wanted to participate, I've got my phone here, I'm not going to text you back, but I'll, I'll be able to read your text, your comment, or your question, and then we can, we'll try it that way. It, this may not work. If it doesn't, it's no big deal. If you're watching on video, just be kind and don't sell me anything. Those are my only two parameters, all right? So, um, but I'm happy to try it. I just thought, let's try it. Why not? Let me pray. Lord, as I was singing those words a moment ago, and, and I, I felt like I wish that were true of me, that every breath and all my hope. And so I had to make that my prayer, my desire that it would be. And Lord, like I guess every message, but especially today, I feel, I feel so stuck. I feel like I'm on the wrong side. I, I have this sense that I'm again longing for the truth instead of having experienced it and sharing it. So together with my friends here, I pray that you help us. Help us. Oh, help us. Help us believe. Amen. I, I, I guess I was thinking, I, this is sort of going to be like an Ikea message. We're going to spread out all the parts and then at the end hope it comes together. <laughs> so there may be a few extra parts. And I, I want to begin with the conclusion of a story that Jesus is going to tell. Jesus is going to tell a, a story, as he often does, where he, he would make up a story and he, he would make them up using, you know, uh, information and situations, 
people that are familiar, but they, they weren't true in the sense that they had happened. But what's really interesting in this story is Jesus, or, or the, the, um, the author of the Gospel of Luke, Dr. Luke, he then remembers a real-life story that helps us understand the made-up story that we're going to look at that Jesus told. So I, I'm going to start at the end, and I'll, I'm going to give you, which I don't know if that's good preaching or not, I'm just going to go ahead and give you Jesus' conclusion of the story before we even read the story, and then we'll go back to that. Here's how Jesus ends this story that in a few moments we'll look at. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's when Dr. Luke remembered this event that happened in the life of Jesus. Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to him, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus ends his story with this conclusion, be humble. And so it begs the question, what does humble look like? And so we hear this story about what humble looks like. So I'm going to ask you, and if you want, you can then participate. We'll practice this, but you don't, no pressure. Um, what is it about children that gives them an advantage over us? They, they've got an advantage. Jesus is saying they've got something almost like automatic that you and I would have to try to achieve just by the fact that they're children. So what is that? What is that characteristic of a child that gives them that advantage? I'll let you answer. And in the meantime, I'll give you, I'm going to give you a couple of mine. I'll give you one for sure. One is that children sort of intrinsically and automatically just trust. I'm, I'm in the process of, with a friend of mine, we're building a little cabin up outside of um, Blackhawk up in Gilpin County, and um, it's been a nice diversion over this summer and over this transition period in my life to be able to kind of work hard every day. And so I, uh, I was up, and I took a little break, and this is really weird. It's somewhat deep forest to either side of me, and I was walking through the forest, and this is like 600 yards from me, which I did not know, and we bought the land last year. Um, 600 yards from me, I discovered this beautiful pond, beautiful, pristine pond with deep woods, and um, so I've been, I've been giving my, my granddaughter, Frankie, updates, and so I, I called Frankie, and she's interested in the, in the cabin, and I said, hey, Frankie, I found a secret pond, and we're going to name it after you. From now on, this is called Frankie's Pond. Now, I don't know how you feel about the ethics of that, because I, I understand there are some dilemmas there, but here's what Frankie did not do. Well, that can't be. Lots of people have probably found that pond. You can't just name a pond after somebody. But she is so intrigued 
that she gets to have her very own pond. She didn't for one second doubt the story because as a child, she's predisposed to trust and to believe this good story. So, I don't know if you have any ideas on what it might... Whoa! There we go. Okay. Um, So, here we go. Children are less preconceived notions on what they should believe. There's a characteristic of a child. Awesome. Children are just who, what they are. They easily move towards love. I'm loving this. This is so great. Kids can accept without knowing all the details why. This is so good. Isn't this true? Like, and you're going, that's just not, that's not naturally who we are, right? Children are easily delighted and not naturally cynical. Yeah. I love that. Cynicism takes time. Kids have nothing to unlearn, no baggage. They only love and they hope. They're vulnerable. You're doing great. I don't want to give you one more. Children trust. They have all of those things. They're so true, and we can begin to sort of capture, but there, there's, there's one that most people miss. I often miss it. This is a very familiar story. We, we've seen flannel graphs, and there's little pictures of Jesus and the delightful little children that are coming. But to be very honest with you, remember, we're entering a story 2,000 years later, and our world is different than that world. And so it helps us, if we can, as best we can, to try to enter back into the story. And I will want to give you this. Children were not viewed 2,000 years ago the way we sort of view them. We have a a very romantic, and in in a sense, and it's a good thing. We've, We've elevated the idea of being a child, and that's good. But 2,000 years ago, a piece of this story and a piece of what was happening with the, with, with the disciples was that children, as part of the caste system, you see, it's human. It's not just in India that they have a caste system. All humans have a caste system. Some just don't codify it. But, but 2,000 years ago, it was a clear caste system. At the bottom of that, below even a slave, were children. Children had nothing of value to contribute. If you wanted to really sort of enter into what maybe is happening here as a part of what's happening, in addition to all that we've talked about, is to think of a a female child. You see, people were valued based on what they could contribute, and children were not contributors. They were, quite honestly, simply takers. There was an economic survival to having children. You had to have kids. You're an agrarian culture. Who's going to take? There's not a social security system. You have to have children to take care of you. Children were a commodity often. And so, Part of this story, part of the things I want is, is all the things we talked about are so true as we listen to what does it mean to be humble? But to remember that to be humble is in one sense not to have something you can contribute and to easily trust. As you know, 
I have this idea that the Bible is written into big themes. I've really enjoyed, I, I've really used lately, I've heard Peter several times now mention this, this idea of Mises versus Jesus. And I like that. It's going to play into this passage. So let's go to the story that Jesus is telling. And it's found in Luke 18, 9, beginning in verse 9. And I just remembered I've got to change one setting here real quick. Okay. That'll help. Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Let me pause just for a second. Forty-two years ago, I became a follower of Christ. In that time, I have spent significant time as a, in, in words or labels that are available to us. As, as, as I've spent a lot of time in fundamentalism. I've been sort of a middle-of-the-road, moderate sort of evangelical. I've spent a lot of time in the progressive movement. And I have yet to find somebody or some institution or some group. I have, not, I have yet to not experience in myself this opening line. Because every time I was part of something, I was part of something because I believed now I'm right. And those around me are primarily wrong. I have yet to find a person who isn't somehow at least tempted to trust in themselves and what they believe to be right and in some way treat those who don't see it their way with some contempt. Here's what's interesting about this story. As soon as I've read this opening line, my immediate thought was about those people who do that. It's a bit of gotcha. And it took me, a, I've been, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I've got a long way to go to unpack this, this story Jesus is going to tell, but I've been at it for a long time now. I've been, I've been meditating on this for a long time, and it wasn't until I was in, I was months into it before I had any thought that I'm that person, which makes me the very person that Jesus is trying to set free. That's not bad news, by the way. Jesus isn't going, you know, he's not dumping the shame bucket on me. He's helping me be free. But one way I can be free is to see myself in this story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. That's a very familiar opening. As a matter of fact, it, it sounds like a joke, right? Two guys walk into a bar. As soon as I say two guys walk into a bar, one a rabbi, one a priest, or whatever it may be, you know what's coming. 
And it's exactly the same mechanism is happening here. You see, what makes humor work is a surprise. The only way that humor will work is when you're surprised. You were expecting this, this happened. You even know that you're going to be surprised because the setup has conditioned us. Two guys walk into a bar. This is the exact same thing that happens in all parables. All stories. So this is crazy. And just take it with a grain of salt. So Jesus is telling jokes when he's telling a parable because at the end of every parable is a surprise that they were not expecting. Two men walk, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. One of the difficulties, again, of, of, of becoming sort of familiar with stories, but we have a 2,000-year disadvantage, is my experience has been in my own life and others I'm around, is we begin to sort of create a, a, a fast track or a code. So when we hear the word Pharisee, we automatically are preconditioned to think sort of the worst of all. It, like, they, they, they become the villain, and they often are in Jesus' stories. But again, remember, though, that from his perspective, so what I'm going to ask you to do to enter this story, I'm going to ask you to dial back the anti-Pharisee sort of bias we might have, just a little bit. And what I mean by that is from his experience and from the people observing him, everything he said was probably true. What it meant to be a Pharisee was to be set apart, was to be somebody who, who did have this deep desire to be religious, to be right, to be righteous. And in his being right and, and righteous, he was not an extortioner. He was not unjust. He was, from his perspective, an adulterer or even like this tax collector, all those in one sense are true. As he's telling this story. Here's a way to help us. If we were living 2,000 years ago, I'm fairly confident if we were picking friends and we were wanting to align with somebody, if we were wanting to create a, a, a little sense of community with somebody, it's the Pharisee that we would most want to be connected to. That's part of Jesus' story here. But the tax collector so for just a minute, I know we've talked about this before. One of the hardest things as we read the scriptures is to, is to not romanticize the tax collector. I often, I, I, I constantly, and I, I, I understand the impulse I, as people talk about Jesus' love for hanging out with the sinners. And it is so true. 
but there is this romanticized idea of being a sinner. What we often mean is sinners we kind of like. The sinner who, who can make our group look pretty good. The tax collector is not one of those. The, the tax collector is, quote, the sinner that you do not want to have anything to do with. You know their story. Their story is, so here's the, the, the Roman system. The Roman system is brilliant at knowing how to occupy and extort the resources of the occupation without creating revolt. And the way they did that was they would get those who were inside that culture, in this instance, in this area of Palestine, they got Jews to become the henchmen. They didn't use Romans to be the tax collectors. That would have been too oppressive. The people would have, they they wouldn't have known enough. They, They couldn't have had the nuance of the culture. But a fellow Jew could. And so a fellow Jew is extorting the people he grew up with quote, family, to enrich the Romans. I haven't yet found a cultural equivalent for us to the hatred that that community would have had. The the closest we can get is, is stories of during war, like in World War II, when the Nazis occupied France, and then there were people who collaborated with the Nazis. So hated. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And here's the punchline. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. As I said, I am um, I like this idea of the Bible being written in this revolving and repeating big themes, and we get to see these ideas from different perspectives and different ideas. And one of those is always about as you know, this trust Jesus or Mises. I really like that. That's been really helpful to me. For me, it's, the, it's this recurring story of idolatry. What's really interesting is to remember that and this is weird, so hang with me. But every idol is good as it began. You you know, like in Romans, when it it says that we turned the creation, all of creation is good. There's nothing that has been created that isn't good. But it is what we do with that creation. When we worship the creation rather than the creator, they took that which was created and they made it an an idol. They, They worship the creation, not the creator. That's the human story. And I think there's a part of the human story that plays out here. Because you see, I think at the heart of the story, a part of it is the creation in us to belong. God created us 
from the very beginning to want to belong, to be connected to Him. But in the beginning, in the garden, there wasn't this big division between what it meant to connect to God or to another. We were innocent. We were free. But when connecting and belonging become the idol, the thing that we worship, the thing that we believe can save us, that's when it becomes dangerous. I had shared on Facebook a couple weeks ago this experience I had when I was at Costco. This is to sort of express how deep is the need to belong. So I'm walking through Costco, and it, you know, I'm, I'm there in, in the late afternoon so that I can eat dinner. Because, you know, if you time it right on the weekend, if you make two loops around it, you're going to be full. If you haven't been to Costco, they just give out samples. There's these sample people on the weekends. Every little, every little aisle has a sample, and it's awesome. And so I, I go to the sample. She has gluten-free, she's doing gluten-free crackers, and, and so I take one, and I, I, and I think, mmm, that's not good. That's not good. <laughs> but the, but the, the lady, this older woman, and she sort of engages me. They're not, I don't know that they're supposed to do that. That usually doesn't happen. They're kind of just in autopilot, but she, we made eye contact and then starts talking. And, and so here's how the story goes. And without even thinking about it, I now want to please her. I instinctively want her to like me. And the quickest way I can do that is to compliment her on her below-average cracker. And so, this is what's weird. Mmm, where do you get those? Hoping it's a long ways, and she just reaches back and hands me a bag. Oh, thank you. And as I'm walking away, and I am basking in the affirmation of my good choice, I am basking in the connection that I had for that moment with this lady. She has fully approved of me. And I walk away. It's just like I'm on autopilot. I'm not thinking about this. It's just weird. And as I get away, now I'm going, well, crap, what am I going to do with a bag of crackers I don't want? And I'm too embarrassed to take them back to her. And so I ditch them on top of some mayonnaise. And, and I know that. Now, I'm not... I, I'm not saying you're at that level of unhealth. I'm not saying everybody's like that. All I'm saying is that it's human to want to be connected. And I think that's a piece of this story. The, um, well, here, let me see if anybody's got, anybody had a question real quick. Okay. Yeah, this is, okay, this is still on the kids thing. That's awesome. Kids forgive hurt quickly. They don't overthink. They receive all things by grace. I love that. Again, this is what we're moving towards. This is what we're trying to do, is be this child, is to be humble. What gets in the way is this story that we have, this idol, in a, in a perverted way of belonging. So as I shared earlier, 42 years, I've, you know, I've sort of experienced a pretty wide spectrum of what it means to be a Christ follower. 
Here's what I've discovered for me as a person who knows how to find approval. The quickest way I can belong is not so much to love the things that you love, but if I hate the people you hate, I'm in. The fastest way to create a community is to identify an enemy. If at the end of any conversation you had this expression, oh, thank you, Lord, that we're not one of those. Belonging by hating is what we've become. We don't even realize that's what we're doing. There's some shortcuts. One is the idea of labels. I'm not saying labels are in and of themselves bad. It, 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 it's helpful and it's true. I'm not saying they're not true. They're Democrats and they're Republicans. There are people who I say, I'm progressive, and others who say, I'm fundamentalist, or I'm evangelical, or I'm this, or I'm that. I, I, there, I don't have a, that's not the issue. The issue is when I then believe that all people are represented by that label, and I'm almost always using that in a way that isn't kind or helpful or beneficial. One of these shortcuts is when we institutionalize our hurt. I hear very often, and I I'm not dismissing this, so hang in with me, but I often hear that I've been hurt by the church. And I, I understand what somebody's saying. Over time, I might want to gently have conversation that says there's nothing you can do about being hurt by church. There's, see, there's no, there's no mechanism for reconciliation when you're hurt and you label that hurt as an institution. But if you say, I've actually been hurt by blank, by this person, the Scriptures has all kinds of ways in which we can find reconciliation. But often when we talk about our hurt, we're not interested in reconciliation and healing. What we're interested in is making sure that everyone knows that at least we're not like those. And here's the one that can be difficult is, um, you see, gossip is the love language of a false community. The easiest way you can feel connected sometimes is if you can begin to talk about that third person who isn't present that you don't like. And if you both don't like that person, then that conversation makes you feel connected. You know what's really weird is you don't even have to have words for gossip. For this mechanism to work, this week I was driving up I-25 and it was, it, was, it was crowded. It wasn't the worst kind of rush hour where you're just at a standstill, but it was that 25 mile an hour kind of congestion on I-25 where it's slow. 
Since I had my motorcycle accident, I'll, I'll admit that I'm a little bit PTSD with, especially like if I see somebody riding a motorcycle on the highway without a helmet. Because I think about my own story and what would have happened if I hadn't had a helmet. And then, and we've all experienced, you know, the, the guy on the, you know, young kid, it seems like always a young kid who's way too fast down the, but this was the worst I'd ever experienced. Because we were moving so slowly, and it, it was the worst I've ever experienced with a motorcycle rider in terms of what they were doing. And he was literally doing three lanes at a time, at full speed, full revved RPM. I, 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 my brain could not comprehend how, how utterly stupid he was. Like he was playing Frogger on I-25 and, and weaving at full speed between us. And then could, he had one of these really high-powered motorcycles, and he, he could accelerate incredibly quickly, and then slamming the brakes, and then moving across lanes. It was insane, and it, it so frightened me. And as he did, and I looked, and I caught the eye of the person next to me in the car. And we had that moment of knowing. We just locked eyes, and we just nodded. He's an idiot. Oh, this was my new friend. This is my new friend because we both know that we're not idiots. We're in our cars driving the way you're supposed to drive. This conversation begs some good questions. Which is, how do we live our lives knowing that we're going to experience deep differences with people? We're going to not agree. We're going to see the scriptures, our politics, differently. How do we avoid the, the, the trap of a false community? How do, we, how do we avoid the trap of scapegoating and othering? Here's a couple of ideas. First, never, never assume a motive that you haven't been told. It goes like this in a false community. You believe or you vote blank. That's that can be talked about. That could be true. I think this. My friend could say, I think this. That's true. That's not a problem. You believe or vote blank because you blank. You vote for blank because you love power and money. Or you vote blank because you're no good at math. You believe, these are the ones I've heard. Carl, you believe blank because you love the law. The you believe blank was true. I don't think the second part was true of me. 
at least that I was aware of. I don't think I love the law. I had an interesting breakfast last, last Sunday, usually on Sunday mornings. Um, I take my, my, my brother-in-law and I take my father-in-law out for breakfast. He likes to tell everybody now he's in his 90th year. He's 89. He's one of the most brilliant, you know, intellectually brilliant people I've ever known. And he loves, but between my father-in-law and my brother-in-law, I can ask any question about the Bible and they will know it. Like they, and they are both incredibly kind, sweet, and humble people. My father-in-law is 90 years old. He has come from a different perspective on the scriptures than me. He, he is gentle and beautiful and kind, but he is much more conservative in some of his understanding of the scriptures than me. And so we were having this conversation, and we were, it came to this disagreement, a place where we did not see the Bible in the same way, and he could bury me with facts. Like, he could, he, could, he, could be, he, could, he could quote more Scripture than I could even look up in time. Like, he is that good at it. But that's not what he does. Ninety years old, and he says to me, Carl, that's really interesting. Tell me, how did you come to believe that? Can you imagine? I mean, he's 90 years old. He could bury, he could win the argument. And instead, he asked me how I came to believe that. He didn't label me a liberal. He didn't label me an anti-Bible person. He asked me a question that he was truly interested in. What is, um, what's challenging? is this idea that once we've identified and owned this idea of what it is that is our, quote, enemy, then all the energy of the Scriptures is what? Push them out, punish them, teach them a lesson, get away from them. Isn't it interesting that the energy and it, you begin to understand, as Jesus talks about enemies, that everything he's doing is creating a path of reconciliation. Pray, love, and bless. So, those are all the pieces. There's probably more than that. But the conclusion, okay, this, I don't know if this will, oh, let's see if this will work. All right. All right, so can I go through the text real quick? This, this may not be the best idea, but I think it's kind of fun. The us and them mentality is such a strong magnetic pull into a trap of narrow-mindedness. We think we'll be safe there, but it just makes us unapproachable and cuts us off from intimacy. <laughs> Don't worry, someone will think the crackers and mayonnaise are a wonderful combo. Uh, there's grace everywhere. All right. 
So we have the pieces of our, what's our conclusion? What's the thing that Jesus is wanting to build? What is then the foundation of a healthy community? The foundation of a healthy community goes like this, and it is not complicated. We're going to practice it in a few moments. We're going to have a, a, a recreation of it. We're, going to, we're not only going to think it, we're going to walk through it. We're going to practice. We're going to taste it. The foundation of a healthy community, the foundation of healthy connecting with each other, the thing that will make it possible is simply this. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And by faith, we believe he has. He doesn't doesn't make us linger wondering if that's going to be true. The foundation of all healthy Christian community is the collective experience together of this prayer. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Because I have mercy on you. And in the same way, he took the cup. If you just made this more blue or something, all right. This is, the, this is the wine, and we'll have juice for those that want juice. But this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sin. Why? Because I've had mercy on you, a sinner. So every time you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you experience, you proclaim, you live out. It's all true. He's been merciful to us. Pray with me, Lord. As Jesus did that night, he said thank you. And so that's what we do. We say thank you that you have been merciful to us sinners. Lord God, we exalt you, for you are truly great. And Lord God, I thank you that when we exalt you, we are humbled and set free. In Jesus' name, amen. So by way of benediction, believe the gospel. Say, what's that? It's this. He who exalts himself will be humbled. God, that's such great news because all my stress, all my fear, and my, all my anxiety and worry comes from trying to exalt myself.
All of our wars, all of our suffering, all of our pain, or at least our social, doesn't it come from trying to exalt ourselves? And if you say, oh God, I don't know if I can stop exalting myself. I, I don't know how to, st I mean, it's just part, it's in like my flesh. Well, here's, this is also good news. Um, he who exalts himself will be humbled. <laughs> God knows how to do that. He knows how to humble you. He's doing that with all of us. And that's also good news, because why does he humble us? So he can exalt us. To what? This incredible party of people that just exalt each other called the kingdom of heaven. So in Jesus' name, believe the gospel, the good news. Amen.